You're listening to Sean's Rambles. I'm here with a very special guest today, Maureen Kincaid Speller. Hello. Hello. So uh, we're here to talk about the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. But before we get to that, it might be a good uh, idea to maybe tell people who the heck you are. Oh, well, um, I'm a critic and a reviewer. I um, am the senior reviews editor of Strange Horizons, which is a really cool job to have. And I also assistant editor on uh, Foundation, the international critical journal of science fiction, which means I spend most of my time doing the copy editing and proofreading and making sure that Samuel R. Delaney's name is spelt correctly. Obviously with, with an extra E, right? <laughs> Absolutely, every time. <laughs> <laughs> Along Wonderful. with his well-known compatriot, um, Roger Zelaney, who um, f- appears from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're here to talk about a, a book that uh, you know has been out for quite a bit and has obviously got a lot of play, which is uh, Juno Diaz's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Um, it's a very interesting book, and I'm really glad that we got to talk about it because uh, this last year was the first time I'd actually read it, and uh, I guess this time was the first time you'd read it, correct? As it turns out, yes. It was one of those books I thought I, I must have read it. We have a copy in the house, and uh, so I assumed I had read it already, and then um, I picked it up for a reread and realized that actually I hadn't read it at all. So um, on one level, this means I don't know the text quite as well as I thought I did. But on the other hand, I've had a wonderful week. Um, acquainting myself with it. It's absolutely wonderful to read. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It is a very fascinating read. So for those that aren't familiar with the story, that the the title character, as it were, um, Oscar Wilde, is a Dominican-American... Uh, well, uh, is he born in the United States? I cannot recall if he was born in the United States. Uh, but whatever. Right, his, uh, uh, a first-generation Dominican uh, from a family who has essentially fled uh, the regime of Trujillo or El Jefe, as he sometimes goes by. Um, and it's sort of about his life, told from the perspective of Junior, a uh, character who describes himself as the Watcher. We may get into what that means later, uh, who sort of ob- observes his life and tells the life story of Oscar Wilde, how he got there, where does his family come from, um, those experiences. And it's sort of part maybe Bildungsroman and part uh, really sad, tragic love story. I guess yes. is one way to describe it. Uh, because, of course, poor Oscar spends most of his life being a giant, giant nerd who has, like, no friends. <laughs> <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> I think actually one of the most interesting things to begin with uh, when I started uh, reading it, I thought, Oscar, yes, I know Oscar. Um, I, or I know people like Oscar, you know, sort of the, the giant nerd who... Um, doesn't seem to be able to sort of uh, find himself a woman. And then I thought, oh, there's a sort of level on which, why is it that we need to think about Oscar in terms of he needs to find a woman? You know, it's sort of actually yeah. what is more interesting is why everyone around him seems to be unable to um, accept Oscar for who he is. And I've actually found that a very intriguing way of, of looking at the novel because there is this sense in which, uh, Junior, um, as the watcher is having all the way through the story, as he tells it, having to negotiate the, the fact of Oscar as a person who isn't necessarily very happy, but who is very uncompromising in his, um, I'm losing a word here, the way he pursues 
you know, what seems to be his destiny. You know, that he, yeah. he, he, he becomes, um, he's a reader, he's a writer, um, and very consistent in his engagement with the genres. Um, which I found really very intriguing. It's, it's, because it's, it's almost, it's more as though Junior has to come to terms with that rather than that Oscar has to change or, you know, truly wants to change. There's a, there's a level on which he's almost oddly actually quite comfortable with the, the sort of the core of himself. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, I mean, we should keep in mind, right, it's told from the perspective of Junior. Uh, and so, so much of what we are seeing is, I mean, we should treat Junior as an unreliable narrator. I mean, it's such a simplistic idea, but it is true because uh, what we eventually learn about Junior, about what kind of man he was versus who he reveals himself to be in the past, and thus, of course, the person who is telling us the story, uh, is there's such a razor focus for him. Uh, and it's almost as though the narrative is very much about how how Junior's attempt to kind of understand who Oscar was by retelling his story has actually changed his view on reality. Because the very first opening chapter, right, he essentially defines himself as this sort of mythic figure from Marvel Comics, The Watcher, which Mm. if you don't know who The Watcher is, he's this creepy looking alien dude from Marvel whose job is quite literally exactly what it sounds. He's a watcher. He's from a race of aliens whose essential purpose is to monitor and observe sentient species. And the watcher in the comics is, uh, he's, he's tasked with Earth. So he like basically hangs out on the moon and watches. He's not meant to interfere, but there is a great moment where he does actually have a conversation with Galactus, which we get the quote at the very beginning. Galactus being the giant, uh, purple and pinkish purple dude uh who's massive has got a weird tuning fork looking head and who basically devours entire worlds and the watcher basically tries to argue with galactus like you you can't eat the earth like you you can't do that (laughs) and the the quote that we get in the beginning is of course galactus's quote which is a wonderful quote and is a really interesting way of thought something we'll talk about it probably later which is of what import or brief nameless lives to galactus right this idea that we're already presented with from the start that you know none of us know who oscar wow is even though as you say right we may to some extent uh know him in in other people uh and so this is a book where it's sort of junior i think coming to terms with who oscar was and coming to terms i think with some respect to to, uh his his own failure to be a a friend to Oscar to have understood him at the time mm. uh, because now he doesn't have that option, right? Like Oscar, we're going to ruin it in case you have not read this. <laughs> uh, Oscar dies a tragic, tragic, romantic sort of death at the end, right? He faces what he perceives to be his destiny. And Junior sort of is stuck in this world where he's kind of trying to pick up the pieces but he's sort of still an outsider because, of course, he's the Watcher. He's this entity from outside. So, There's a, actually another way to think of the Watcher too. Is so sort of not uh, not just the Guardian, but the Witness. Yeah, I, I didn't know this about Galactus, which is um, you know the, the the role of the Watcher because I'm I'm not a I'm not a comics person. So um, this is actually really interesting to me because you've got this idea. Um, there is that function of uh, Junior as um, Oscar's guardian when they're at, uh, at college. But there's also, as we move on through time, um, of course, 
it is like uh, Unir is doing the thing he couldn't do earlier and is actually witnessing the life, as I said, the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow. He's actually witnessing that and finally sort of bringing it to other people's attention. So you, he's actually telling that brief, um, brief nameless life. He's actually, you know, bringing, bringing Oscar to life again in a way. Yeah, I yeah. think that's an interesting way of looking at it too, of kind of maybe in a way the book is a pushback against that opening quote. You know. Yes, um, I think too politically. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing we'll 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 talk a little more about Trujillo, um, Trujillo's regime. There is also that need, um, you know, to witness the people who disappear because there's a, there's a constant yeah. low level um, thread throughout this of you know things uh, things that have happened to people that wouldn't necessarily have been really known about at the time. But there's always the this person disappeared, that person disappeared, and somebody. Uh, you know, if you you speak their name or articulate their um, fate, you actually keep them in in the consciousness. Well, and isn't that kind of? I mean, we may want to talk about this, which is that's I think one of the more horrifying prospects is there are thousands of people who we may never fully know what happened to them because that regime is is at least depending on your perspective from the book because the book is not maybe so optimistic but uh in that respect but the regime is gone uh but uh we know for a fact that 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 Trujillo is a man who uh, he did order and is described in the book the the massacre of Haitians uh Haitian immigrants uh who killed people often I mean what we expect from dictators right often for political opposition perceived opposition Right, had people offed, uh, disappeared as another way of thinking about it. Uh, and so many of those, those voices, I mean, we met, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I, I guess the, the way I would think about it is the, you know, South, South Africans, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right, was an attempt, right, and largely people consider it to be a failure, but an attempt to try to find closure in a mm. nation racked with people disappearing and dying and being murdered and mayhem and destruction. Uh, and so in some ways, some people were able to find that because their killers would come, their, the killers of their loved ones would come forward, right? And say, I'm no, I'm the one who disappeared him. I know what happened, right? Mm. So you get that closure. But in something like this, right? So many die. And Oscar, I think, is our, our, our gateway into kind of like, here is a person who, who is a victim of this regime, uh, you know, unwitting victim, as it were. And uh, by witnessing him, we're we're trying to sort of grasp all of those lives that have been snuffed out that we whose stories we won't hear, and probably yeah. never can hear because you know the, their families are dead, or uh, you know nobody even knows like nobody knows who they were when they de- were disappeared. You know they're yeah. just dead. Like all the Haitian immigrants we ever mentioned here are dead. I don't even think they have names for those people. They just know it occurred, and there's just there's people like, there. Yeah, there's there's dig sites where they've dug up the bodies. That's how they've confirmed it. Is like they dug out like all the bones and stuff. Uh, it's just insane because yeah. nobody knows who those people are. No, it's it's really very hard actually to you know take you from somewhere like you know Britain to get a kind of grip on that kind of level of. What I'm going to say is extermination. I mean, yes, um, you can think about, 
Hitler, you know, sort of uh, the extermination of the Jews. But there is there's a, a, a the sense of difference between the, the the massive documentation that the Nazis engaged in, and this is just you know kind of the sense of utter disregard for them. Actually, even you know, even as the Nazis are refusing to see the Jews as people, they're still documenting them obsessively. But this is just it's. It's very hard to imagine, actually, a world in which people just aren't even concerned to document what they're doing. You know, they're sort of, they can't even see them as people with names. I find it fascinating that it takes the novel so long to actually get to the point where we talk about uh, Oscar's grandfather, Abelard, and what happened to him. You know, it's very, it's almost like the novel has to um, ease its way into the idea. You know, you keep stepping back and back and back to talk about what's happened to the generations of um Oscar's family um and you, you it's as though Junior can't quite actually bring himself to admit it himself to begin with it just has you know he has to take it in you know baby steps until he feels strong enough to actually talk about it and i think it's interesting too the way in which he sort of reaches for these other frameworks you know like uh, comic books and lord of the rings to actually um engage so it, when when it's sort of positions himself as the watcher there's you know, it, this is a comic book character but there's there's also a kind of uh, a flavor of the various watchers in lord of the rings as well you know, cause you've got some mm. watchers on both sides you, um which is not that i want to think of hunir as a gandalf kind of figure but neither is he a, a sort of you know a, an eye of sauron or a voice of sauron yeah. kind of figure but there's that that sense of all the time you know one of the things that's going on in Lord of the Rings is there are lots of people watching, waiting for the right moment to move, which I hadn't really thought about until I started thinking about this book. But um, there's, there's something I, I wonder if choosing um, there's two things going on. Maybe uh, you know, this is what uh, Unia is familiar with uh, reading: you know, comic books, Lord of the Rings, epic fantasy. But also, if it's a way. Um, a protective measure even now, you know, sort of subsequent generations, still that kind of I'm not really talking about Trujillo's regime. You know, I'm 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 talking about something else that you might think looks a bit like, you know, Trujillo's regime. So I I'm I'm covering my tracks as well. I don't know how that flies. I don't know. I I, I mean you know, he describes uh he described Trujillo at a number of points as as literally being the eye of Sauron. Mm. Right? We we get this and you see that that repetition throughout the book, right? Of the eye, the eye, mm. the eye. So that, you know, by the time we get to Abelard's narrative, we don't really need him to explain what he means by the eye. Now all you need is a sentence that mentions the eye and we know exactly what it yeah. means. Um and and so I think that um if it it may be a coping mechanism, but I wonder if on some level the the sort of the geeky references uh, throughout the book are are an attempt to make sense of something for an audience that doesn't know how to make sense of it. Uh, you take you know, the very words from my mouth. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is true. Or the, the, I mean, this is a book that is published in the United States um, to an audience who, let's be frank, probably doesn't even know who Trujillo is. Right. I mean, Dominicans perhaps do, but I, well, I assume they do, but maybe they don't. Uh, but, you know, most Americans won't know. Uh, I suspect most Britons wouldn't either. They mean, they may have some vague idea, but so it's sort of, I think, right, trying to like, let me explain to you 
what this man was like mm. in a way that you could understand. I will give you these almost mythic qualities to this character, this sort of mythic monstrosity, this the Sauron character um, as a great example. Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of what, what that's about. And I think it's curious that you bring up Abelard because you're right that uh, I think it's Junior who's having the difficulty, right, of getting getting to tell this part of the story, like as though, as you say, right, he has to keep going back and back and back, step by step. Uh, despite the fact that the footnotes throughout the book are gloriously, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Critical is almost too nice. Yes. Blistering critique, <laughs> I guess. If I I'm not actually, sure what the right word is. <laughs> yeah, I was very interested in the way he, um, the, the way that the footnotes were employed, actually, because... Uh, it, it seemed as the book moved on, I think it became a lot more open about what was going on. But I, I, I felt certainly towards the beginning that the, the footnotes were being used, uh, as a way of actually telling you what was really happening because nobody ever reads the footnotes. Except, of course, we all know lots of geeky people who do read the footnotes. So it seemed <laughs> to me that if you were the kind of person who read footnotes, you'd be, um, in solidarity with the content of the footnote, whereas if you were not the yeah. kind of person who reads footnotes because you assume that yeah, what's on the page is what's on the page and that nobody would actually be um, putting a sort of kind of meta level in the, foot, uh, in the footnotes. Um, so you could actually have this kind of discussion um, going on, you know, a dual discussion on the page. Uh, but I thought at the beginning it seemed to me that he was actually concealing the, the commentary about what goes on in those footnotes, in the small print. Um, but he actually found a, there was a kind of freedom in the footnotes for our mysterious watcher writer. Yeah. I found really, I'm always interested in when novels use footnotes um, because the, my, my sort of first real encounter with this was Terry Pratchett being terribly amusing in footnotes, followed <laughs> up very shortly after by lots of other people trying to be terribly amusing in footnotes like Terry Pratchett and completely and utterly failing because they didn't really grasp, I think, how Terry Pratchett used the footnotes um, judiciously for a start. And um, <laughs> it struck me then that if you're prepared to use footnotes very carefully, um, you can actually do an awful lot of storytelling in that way. And it, I think this, this, um, novel actually has become the, the exemplar to me of what you can actually do with that. It's also too, there's a level, I guess, on which you could actually think of, um, Unia using the footnotes to, um, sort of have a conversation with himself. I mean, if we, we sort of take the idea that he's writing the novel as one way of coming to terms with, um, what has happened, is um we are all people who use writing as a way of you know interrogating a a fact or a condition or a story yeah and then it's almost like he's he's doubly interrogating himself as well so yeah. he's you know he's written the thing and then he actually he comes back and annotates it himself and yeah I, sorry yeah. oh no i think that's really interesting and uh, you know the the footnotes there's there's something really fascinating about the footnotes in that uh, the footnotes are are largely descriptive in the sense that they they're they're just kind of telling us like here is how I view this situation here's some random historical facts right I'm gonna in some cases make fun of figures involved in the Trujillo regime uh, and and sort of be sort of blisteringly critical 
Uh, and then later on, what we get is we're getting the version of the telling that is actually the story. So these these footnotes are sort of like, here's who Trujillo was. He was a total turd. And all, here's how he treated women. And here's how he did this. And here's how he disappeared these people. And this person married this person and then murdered that person. But then we get Abelard, which is, but now we're going to see how this actually works and the psychological impact that has on a on a person, let alone a family. Yeah, uh, because those stories are so much rooted in in history, and Euner's somewhat. Um, I don't know if flippant would be the word I would use. I'm trying to think of the right word, but he's sort of. I don't he, think it's so much flippant as that it is not immediately. Um, it's not immediate to his own experience. I, I, I was. Yeah. I was teaching uh, um, text by um, Tom Dish a couple of years ago. And I can't remember the story, but it was basically set in a kind of um, hyper sort of national socialist kind of word, a world. And it was, you know, a lot of um, uh, people living in sort of barracks and things. And I was trying to get my class to come to a conclusion about this. And one of my classes said, oh, God, it's about the Nazis again, isn't it? I said, well, oh, yes, from your point of view, it is. But let, let's stop and think about the fact that this was written and published in 1963, which was a lot closer to World War Two. And I suddenly had this acute moment that for them, the Nazis is, was something that had always been on the History Channel, you know, or there was another history program on the BBC about the Nazis. Whereas at the point that this was written and the point when I was growing up, you know, the Nazis was still something that hadn't wasn't so far in our past. I'm wondering if you've got the same thing here that for for Junior that it's sufficiently far in the past that he can be more casual about it than you know his parents' generation or his grandparents' generation because they they lived it or else they directly experienced the fallout of it. So you've got um, Abelard, you know, he lived and died in it. Belly, um, she experienced the fallout of her father's death, so it, it shaped her entire life. Whereas for somebody like Junior you know, or for Oscar, it's a thing that their parents and their grandparents talk about. And we all know that as the third generation, you know, when your grandparents are going on about something that was very real and present in their lives, it's kind of, oh, and, you know, as you grow a bit older, you then regret that you did not talk to them about it if they wanted to talk about it. But it, there is that, that sufficient distance to be much more casual about it. And I think there's a point that he is partly trying to be entertaining about it because it's just so awful. You have to resort to humor. But there's a level, I think, too, in which he is, he's casual because he cannot help but be casual because it hasn't, you know, had a, an immediate impact on him. But I think actually one of the most interesting things to me about the Abelard section, which actually it took me two goes to read that because it was really grim and um, that's a great piece of writing. Um, You know, it's a long time since I've actually felt my stomach quite so turned by a piece of fiction, but it's almost as though Unia had to learn how to write that. Does that make sense? Oh, I I agree. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, Because I also see this too, partly as the entire novel is kind of representative of Junior learning how to write. He's actually, you know, testing himself as he goes along. It's a, a kind of, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. It's, it's almost a, a sort of portfolio of, of Junior trying different things and learning how to tell his story. Yeah. And interestingly enough, of course, it's, 
it's Oscar who's the one that throughout the book is described as the writer, the obsessive writer. Yeah. And here is Junior who, after Oscar's death, has decided, I'm I'm gonna tell this story. And I think you're right. This is this is an interesting book in in that the structure of it does suggest on some larger level that Junior is trying to not only come to terms with the history to understand and to represent it, but to also try he's trying to come to terms with his own own voice as a writer because at the end right the very last maybe the second to last chapter there are a couple like false endings uh where he he basically says right that you know i i'm gonna sit down in my my house that's not too bad in an area that's not too bad with my wife who's not too bad (laughs) and i'm gonna try to you know i'm just gonna write i'm just gonna you know why not yeah because i figured sort of figured out my life um and it's in a way I think he thanks Oscar for that because Oscar kind of helped him uh in ways that he he didn't I think anticipate. Um you know because the first time that he actually tells us when he meets Oscar, right? He thinks Oscar's a super weird dude. Like he's only doing he's only helping Oscar because Lola wants him to, right? Mm. With Oscar's sister. He's like, "Yeah, I'll stay with him because he's kind of like he's trying to commit suicide and he's kind of crazy." And I'll like, I'll like take care of him, but like, he doesn't really like Oscar because Oscar is, as we see throughout the book, right? He's enormously geeky. He speaks in geek references, right? When he talks, he doesn't talk like a normal person would talk, right? He talks like somebody who's at like the Lord of the Rings Ren Fair. Um, he has this. It's true, right? He <laughs> yes, this... yes. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm not laughing. I'm laughing in recognition. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, I um, think it's actually yeah. really interesting that. He becomes that Oscar is actually christened Oscar Wilde because, of course, that's what we actually we think of Oscar Wilde is that um, that very prepared presentation. Um, there's a lovely story I think it was Giles Brandreth told about um, Oscar Wilde making his grand exit from uh, a town. You know, he'd been to visit people and they'd taken him down to the station to um, see him off, and then. Um, so he'd made his sort of his, his big parting sort of speech from the, the, the carriage window and settled down. And then the train didn't go out as it ought to have done. And uh, I think it sort of chuffed out of the station and then was shunted back in and then had to go out again. And of course, at this point, Oscar Wilde is sunk down in the, um, seat in the carriage so that people can't see him because as he admits, you know, the whole exit, the, the leaving was a performance and he can't do that again. He can only do it once because it was all carefully prepared, and he has no um, no preparation for having to leave a second time. It seems to me there's a sort of sense of Oscar as a, a highly um, he's very he's a highly performed presence, and he so he has to uh, look at, you know, present himself in a in a very particular way. And there's the long words and the the very sort of apparently orotund manner of speech. Uh, yeah. Whereas you know, Junior is your man who is. Um, constantly uh reacting whereas oscar's problem of course is he can't he's he is a performance you know however sympathetically we feel towards him and i feel very sympathetically towards uh oscar he he is he is a constructed performance whereas uh, it's almost like Junior's problem is that he's completely unconstructed and he's got no idea how to perform and he's learning how to actually sort of construct himself and put himself together as a um consistent personality which he does through his engagement with Oscar. So really, 
you've actually got the situation where Oscar thinks he's helping, uh, sorry, Unia thinks he's helping Oscar. But when you actually start looking at it from the end, um, Oscar was helping Unia in, in, in many more ways. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, so there are a couple of things and then I, I, uh, we're going to run out of time. So I want to make sure that we can talk about masculinity for at Let's least a do couple that. minutes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, one is, uh, you, you brought up this idea that's great idea of the, the constructedness of Oscar. And I think it's interesting that, that in a way, Junior is his exact foil, right? Because when it comes to the issue of masculinity, so I'll keep this tied in at least a little bit, right? We know that Junior, he's the kind of person who, who struggles with the idea of monogamy. He, he can't seem to stick with it, right? He cheats on Lola so many times. He, he sleeps with lots of women, right? He, he even tries to convince Oscar that that's the way he should be, right? You know, like you should, you need to like get some ladies. And that's, of course, throughout this book, right? So much of Junior's perspective is like, you got to get some, some booty. Like this is like a thing. Um, but Oscar is so enamored with this idea of destiny because he's read, read so many fantasy novels where like the hero gets like his, you know, he's, there's a prophecy and like, you know, the hero goes and saves the world and it gets the girl, but he even fantasizes about this idea. And so in the end, I think that Oscar's death is actually exactly that, that idea that Junior would have just left. He would have said, bye, I, I wash my hands of it. I'm going to go to Newark and I'm done. Right. Oscar, yeah. believing in this idea of destiny that he can make destiny happen, knows he is going to die, that he's going to be murdered by the captain. He's going to be murdered by Trujillo's regime um, for love, right? And he doesn't care. He's set himself out there because he's going to get this. He's going to uh, he's going to find love, and he's going to have that moment, and he's going to die in his mind as a hero. In a way, he doesn't, but that may be something we should save for another time. But on the subject of masculinity, right, so much of this book is 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 obsessed with what that means, what it means to be a man, to exhibit one's masculinity, right? So much of Junior's uh perspective is very much the kind of traditional of what we expect, right? A man who goes and seeks women, he's somewhat aggressive. Well, I mean, all of yeah. them. Um there doesn't seem to be a single man in this story that I can think of. I mean, even Abelard, who's presented quite sympathetically, has got a mistress. Um, True. You know, the gangster is married, um, as well as uh, having uh, Belly as a, as a mistress. In fact, the only person who in any way represents fidelity um, throughout the story is Oscar. Um, so I've been thinking about this ever since I raised it with you. Um, as we said, we, we on the one hand have to take um, Unia as a, a very unreliable narrator because, of course, all first-person narrators are. Um, yep. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like he's actually this sort of this idea of hypermasculinity. He's simply reflecting everything that he sees around him, and there is this sort of intense. Um, you know, everybody uh, is. All the men are trying to sort of prove their manhood, and I'm wondering if that's something that emerges in a a society where you don't have a huge amount of power, say politically, you know, or on a, on a, in, a, in a wider social context. So you have to um, express yourself uh, in other ways. So you've sort of become very centered on showing how um, sexually potent you are when you are politically impotent. 
I knew I'd get there in the end. Um, <laughs> do, do, do you see what I mean? It's sort of yeah. this, this idea that if you have no um, fast external power, then you have to try and do your best to apparently uh, control the situation um, in, in other ways. So you've got all these men who appear to think that they're sort of you know, God's gift to women. And then at the same time, you have all the women trying to sort of work their way around the men. I mean, it's always, if you notice, it's, it's the women who are running businesses, the women who are, you know, sort of working three jobs. In fact, Unia is the first guy you actually see, I think. Um, so, so again, we're down at that third generation thing who sort of, he finally ends up with a proper job. Yeah, like a, a normal proper job and a house and a, yeah, and it, it's, and it's yeah. not a very masculine proper job because, you know, you know how people tend to talk about writing not being a proper job. And so he's teaching writing to kids. You know, teacher is a, yeah. is a soft job. So he's actually, <coughs> excuse me, um, moved much more towards Oscar's, um, stance, but he's come at it rather than Oscar knowing absolutely certainly in this, you know, tragic romantic, um, literature fueled kind of way what he wants to be. Um, Unia has actually come to the same, uh, point of view, but he's, he's gone round the, you know, school of hard knocks way and, and had to figure it out, you know, figure out through, um, experience what it is that, uh, Oscar in some mysterious way knew straight right from the start. Except, of course, that Oscar's understanding of this was born out of, um, an inability to engage with women because, you know, of how he perceived himself to start with. Well, and, and keep in mind too with Oscar, it's it's told to us pretty early on that when he was a child he was he he exhibited the features that are in the book often described as being like how a dominican man behaves right he's like a little boy and he gets yes. a girlfriend right and he does all of these things but then he has his his heart broken right like in the way that little kids do when they have little girls they're they're attracted to and yada yada right yeah uh and that becomes a very defining moment at least from Junior's perspective that that's the moment that Oscar loses his confidence and he can no longer be a quote-unquote Dominican man. And I think on another level of this, and then I'll let you have one final thought, and we gotta we got to go, because <laughs> we're just going to have to come back for this. We're just yeah, going to have to do yeah. more Oscar Wow. This book is too dense. It's so much wonderful. Um, I think on another level of this, that, that the way in which the book positions masculinity, particularly its more toxic forms, is... Uh, is not just a, a response to, to the, the, I, the phrasing you use is political impotence. So we'll just stick with that because that's a perfect term. <laughs> uh, I think it's also on some level the, that the book is positioning it as the long-term consequences of a system in which your leader is described as a womanizer slash rapist slash, uh, whatever the term we want to, you know, horrible human being, just depraved, uh, lecher. Right, because so much of this book, I mean, the Abelard section we keep mentioning, right, that's what Abelard struggles with the whole time is he has daughters, and one of his daughters is described to us as being very attractive, mm. and in sp- almost explicit terms are described as the kind of woman that El Jefe would want. Yes. And he spends so much of that, that section trying to hide his daughter. He wa- he tries to convince uh, Trujillo when he meets him, like, no, no, my daughter's not actually beautiful, like. I can't remember what he says, but something to the effect of, like, she fell on her face and she looks like she got hit by a bus, right? Like, yep. anything he can do to convince Trujillo, my daughter's no good. And unfortunately, in doing that, he's lying, right? He's trying to protect his daughters from the men he knows exist. But he's lying, which means, of course, he's violating the, the system. And the system, of course, throws him in prison and he dies there. 
but so much of the rest of the book is about what did it means to be a Dominican man. So many people tell Oscar, you're not being Dominican. You're not Dominican enough. They even tell him like explicitly that you're not Dominican enough because you don't you don't like go after women all the time. You're not getting laid all the time. You're like this sort of typical top toxic kind of masculinity. And it's I think it's very much positioned as these are this is sort of what 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 may be our metaphorical representation of the long term impacts of a regime like Trujillo's where women are being abused on a systemic level. Mm. And here are these men who are, you know, Junior is he's a third maybe he's like a third generation or close enough, right? That even that far out, uh, that's what we're seeing and and I think Junior and some level is trying to grasp what that means, which is why, of course, in the end he becomes I guess you might say the kind of placid nice junior <laughs> versus the regular the, guy junior yeah yeah, the regular guy junior and i yeah. think that's part of what he's working through right is that i think that, so yeah yeah um yeah this uh this is a thing we have to say for another day too so i mean when you see abelard you immediately think of abelard and eloise and we all know what happened to that abelard uh which of course he was castrated um but yes i think there's one of the sort of the great movements under this entire novel is actually struggling with that and it's interesting too that the way in which everybody wants Oscar to be, you know, Dominican, when at that point I don't think he's ever lived in the country. Um, so there's sort of this idea that, um, what, what, what is the effect of diaspora? Which mm, is something yeah. else we need to park. But there's that expectation simply, you know, almost as though it is in the blood, you know, to be Dominican is to be hyper masculine and, you know, sort of want to screw every woman in sight. And you think there must be other people, there must be other Dominican men who don't think like that, but, you know, why, why can we not see them? Presumably because they're all carefully camouflaging themselves. I mean, yeah. it, it seems to me there's a lot about camouflage in this, this novel. You're sort of trying to present yourself in certain ways in order to escape notice. But of course, the very act of performing in order to camouflage yourself attracts attention because it's a performance. It's, it, there's this beautiful, beautiful contradiction right at the heart of the whole novel that in, that you're trying to be one thing in order to, um, escape, um, notice and of course the very act of trying to hide means that you attract attention uh, i think that's true for uh oscar as well i mean in many ways there's a certain bravery about oscar that having sort of uh been pushed you know away from his original role very early on he very bravely soldiers on sustained by his love of epic fantasy um in, yeah and being true to himself it's, it's almost ironic really isn't it um you know he, he's being very true to himself He's guided by the fiction. It's maybe not a great role model, but on the other hand, as I said, you know, it's there in the title. His life may be brief, but there is something wondrous about it as a result. Because even though he's not there, he's got this posthumous effect. So, I mean, if the novel had ended with the discovery of Oscar's novel, I think that would have been a disaster. <laughs> it really would. Yeah. The, the important thing about Oscar's novel is that we don't know. We have the letters. And the letters are almost, uh, they're, 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 they're more revealing because they're not him performing. They're him being, you know, Oscar from the heart. And I actually looked at this again. He said, you're right. There's three different endings. There's, yeah. There's, there's the, the final letter and the end of the story and uh, another one. Yeah. The final voyage. And so it's, it's actually, again, it mirrors Lord of the Rings, which can't bring yep. itself to end. Um, there's always that sort of lovely bit. They've, they've done everything. And King Aragorn has been crowned, and then they've still got to come home and get that sorted out. Yeah, yep. and then there's the bit when they all go off to the Grey Haven. So you've got that same tripartite structure. 
Yeah. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of stuff we're going to have to can of worms because yeah, <laughs> we can't. Yes, the more uh, we, we can't talk go over it, it. The more there is to think about. So we need yeah. to do this again. <laughs> I think we're just gonna have to come back and do Oscar Wow Part Two. So I would be delighted to. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, real quick, uh, we want to tell folks where they can find you on the interwebs. Oh, on the interwebs, yes. Um, I have a I have a blog called Paper Knife. Um, so if you search for Paper Knife, because I can't remember the URL at the moment, you will find me. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, as Maureen K. Speller. And I hang around a little on Facebook, but we won't talk about that one because I don't use it very much. <laughs> so, uh, yes, look for me on Twitter as Maureen K. Speller or look for my blog called Paper Knife, and I will possibly even be there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Maureen, for coming to talk to me about this very interesting book. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's a frustrating exercise because the more you talk, the more you uncover. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, if you have any thoughts, you can send me an email at... Uh, A-R-C-O-N-N-A at yahoo.com or just go to seanduke.net and go to the contact page. Sean Duke is with a U, not a W. And it's not S-E-A-N. That's not my name, so don't spell it that way. Uh, Yeah, so thanks again for everybody for listening and I will see you next time. (laughs) 